You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Greetings, fellow believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. In this episode, I will teach about the judgment seat of God and the uh, eternal destiny of both believers and unbelievers. So the Bible teaches about a general everlasting destiny for all members of the human race. John 3.36 says that the one who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But the one who does not obey the son, that is, does not believe, will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Traditionally and simplistically, it's heaven or hell. This is also described from the perspective of the resurrection of the body. One Old Testament summary is at Daniel 12, 2. At that time, uh, this is given in an end times context. Gabriel states that there will be two resurrections. The details are not provided, but within the scenario of end times events, there will be one, a a resurrection to everlasting life, and two, a resurrection to shame and everlasting rejection. Jesus described it at John 5, 29. A time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out those who did the the good to a resurrection of life and those who committed the bad to a resurrection of judgment. The good that needs to be done is indicated by verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. At John 6, 29 and 30, the people asked Jesus, what are we to do so that we may accomplish the works of God? And he told them that the only deed or work that is acceptable to God for salvation is the action of putting faith in him as the savior of the world. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The bad is indicated at John 3.36. The one who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Here it is. But the one who does not obey the Son, that is, does not believe, will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. At Acts 24.15, Paul described this as the hope of Israel, that there would be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, prior to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, everyone who died went into Hades, deep in the heart of the earth. This area was divided into two compartments, two parts, uh, paradise and torment. All unbelievers went into the place of torment to await the future resurrection unto judgment. Now, of course, at that time, they would be well aware of their failure to adjust to God's justice, their failure to express faith in the salvation promise. But the formal judgment will not occur until they are resurrected and appear at the great white throne uh, judgment after the the thousand-year earthly kingdom. All who believed in God's plan of salvation during that Old Testament period Uh, Through trust in in the promise of a savior, uh, they were considered saved from sin. That principle uh, is uh, summed up by Paul at Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When uh, these believers died, they went into paradise and they experienced comfort and joy. When Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he took all those believing souls into the third heaven there to await the future physical resurrection of the body. So the the place of paradise is now located in the third heaven and believers who die 
now go right into the presence of the Lord in the third heaven. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body and face-to-face uh, -face with the Lord. Now, in general, there is one recompense or expression of divine justice for believers in Jesus and one expression of justice to unbelievers. This is found in many passages as a summary statement, such as Isaiah 62, 11, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his compensation before him. And in Isaiah 40, verse 9, go up on a high mountain, Zion, messenger of good news. Raise your voice forcefully, Jerusalem, messenger of good news. Raise it up, don't fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here's your God. Behold, the Lord uh, Yahweh will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his compensation is with him and his reward before him. Jesus stated it at Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every person according to his deeds. Solomon summarized it at Ecclesiastes 12:14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or bad. And we saw earlier at John 5:29, there will be a resurrection to judgment and a resurrection to everlasting life. The resurrection to everlasting life, uh, the resurrection of the righteous, is called the first resurrection, and it's going to occur in stages. At 1 Corinthians 15, 23, the first stage is Christ the first fruits. Second stage is stated as, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. That is, all believers from all of history up to and including those who are alive at that time. This is described at 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And at the famous rapture passage at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds for a meeting with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And at Mark 13, 27, the words of Jesus, then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect ones out from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now, also during the time frame of Christ's presence, all believers who will die after the rapture will be resurrected at the start of the thousand-year earthly kingdom. And then at the end of the thousand-year earthly kingdom, all believers who have died and are alive at that time will be resurrected. Um, thus, we see the various stages of what is called the first resurrection. Now, the resurrection of the unrighteous will not be in stages, but will be completed in one event after the earthly kingdom. This is described at Revelation 20, 11 through 15, as, as the judgment at the great white throne. I'll look at that later. Uh, but now the evaluation of the believer's works is also different from that of the unbeliever. Um, briefly, at the last judgment, the unbeliever's works are going to be mentioned to establish the fact that they have come short of God's righteousness. The believers, on the other hand, have trusted in Christ's one work that paid for the sins of the world. And on that basis, they're viewed by God as righteous. Romans 3.22, among many, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus is for all those who believe. And the believer's evaluation of life and deeds is actually separate from resurrection. This evaluation is described from two perspectives. First, the fact of salvation. That is the possession of everlasting life. John 5.24, for example. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. 
And two, the evaluation of the believer's works to determine the quality of rewards and recognition throughout eternity. And this is where the issue of the judgment seat of Christ comes into our study. The concept of the judgment seat is taken from the Greek word bema. It was a place where justice is administered. Humanly speaking, a tribunal or judicial bench. It's used this way at John 19:13. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. At Acts 18:12, uh, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. The Bema is Paul's vocabulary, used only two times, and it's not used anywhere else in Scripture for divine evaluation. Uh, Paul uses it first at Romans 14, 10 through 12. But as for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well, why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow. And every tongue will make acknowledgement to God. So then each one of us will give a word concerning himself to God. And the second place it's used is 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home, in heaven, or alive here on the earth, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done whether good or bad. Both passages simply state the fact of an evaluation event for every believer. It doesn't say when that event will occur. And at that evaluation event, God's going to reject what is unacceptable in his eyes, and he will praise what is acceptable in his eyes. And then he will assign rewards to each individual believer according to his own standards of righteousness. A more detailed description of that evaluation is written at 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each person must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet only as through fire. This passage deals with the mechanics of evaluation rather than the time of the evaluation. And I suggest that it's going to occur in an instant of time, and it's probably going to be a private event. Now, there are two categories of works that are mentioned. Valuable building, uh, valuable building material. That's symbolized by the gold, silver, and jewels. And then there's non-valuable material, which is symbolized by wood, hay, and straw. The issue is good versus bad, light versus darkness, pure versus impure, righteous versus unrighteous. And it's uh, going to be the very nature of God's perfect justice, uh, an indiscriminate fire that will do the purifying the day will show it. That is the light of God's character because it is to be revealed by fire to test the quality and show what is pure and, and what is impure. The results of the evaluation will be a combination of receive a reward and suffer loss. That is, suffer loss of reward. And regardless of the disparity between the two, the believer himself will be saved. And then, immediately at the conclusion of that evaluation, the believer will, of course, totally agree with God without question, all to the glory of God's perfect righteousness. And here, as before, Paul establishes the fact of the evaluation without really focusing on the time of the evaluation. The question then is this, when will this evaluation take place? 
Now, many, many passages indicate that there are going to be an evaluation of the believer's works at the time of Christ's second coming. Let's look at some of them. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of human hearts, and then praise will come to each person from God. This certainly sees an evaluation of works at the time of Christ's coming. It's at that time that every believer who's alive on the earth and is raised up with Christ at the rapture will receive an evaluation of life and deeds. Uh, Paul is simply stating the fact that there will indeed be this evaluation at Christ's coming. And on that basis, the believers are, are exhorted, leave the judging of other people's lives in God's hands, and he will evaluate what was good and what was bad. Uh, then there's Revelation 22:12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. The teaching to John and through him to the church states the importance of being prepared to meet the Lord. The word group quickly basically indicates the idea of without delay. Now, that's delay according to God's timing. And that means that the plan of God is progressing according to schedule. And everyone needs to focus on faithfulness and service. It's the same thing that John exhorts at 1 John 2.28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. Another passage is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, as is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the approval of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a specific promise to all believers, but the exhortation is to those who are alive on the earth and suffering at the time of his coming. This, this is not really an issue for those who have died and are presently face-to-face -face with the Lord. This, as with other passages, is viewing the second coming as an event that could occur in the foreseeable future of John's letter, but it should be kept within the same context as 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. Uh, there, Paul wrote that the present sufferings of the believers could possibly escalate into the tribulation that, that was prophesied by Jesus. All right, so now there are also crowns that are promised to faithful believers, and they are mentioned also in a context related to the second coming of Jesus. Now, whether the crowns are literal or symbolic is not an issue for this study. First passage, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, the crown of righteousness is mentioned. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, my physical departure, his death, has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that the day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. This is uh, a reward for consistent faithfulness in following the standards of Christianity throughout one's life. It seems that Paul has in mind the day of Christ's return, the phrase, Literally in the Greek is, uh, it will be, he will reward it to me on that the day. But what is interesting is that he also seems to view this time that he calls on that day as an event that will occur sometime after his death. That is, uh, after his departure. So also at James 1.12, we have the crown of life. Happy is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The time of once he has been approved, it's not indicated, but as with the other passages, it probably has in view the day of Christ's return. At 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4, the crown of glory is mentioned. This is a reward to recognize the fulfillment of one's spiritual gift. The gift in view is pastor-teacher. 
but the principle should apply equally to everyone who fulfills his own spiritual gift. And if not, it doesn't change the time of reward that is in view. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is stating the expectation of the reward that will be assigned or given at the second coming of Jesus. So, at the second coming of Jesus, the rapture will occur, and all believers will receive a resurrection body. The souls of those who have died will be reunited with their resurrected physical bodies and join the living believers for a meeting with the Lord in the air. At that time, each believer who was alive on the earth will stand in the presence of Jesus for the first time. And at that moment, his life and deeds will be evaluated by the fire of divine justice. There won't be any waiting for a future evaluation. It is not reasonable to think that the raptured saints would live in heaven after the rapture without having their evaluation completed. But we're going to see later that there is still going to be a future, that a future formal event that won't necessarily be an evaluation, but will be the uh, giving of the rewards that were um, determined and assigned at the uh, time of evaluation. Now, the rapture certainly includes all believers, both living and those who have previously died. But what about all those believers who have died before the second coming of Christ? Seems kind of pointless for the multitudes of believers who died before the rapture to reside in the third heaven with Jesus and still to not have had their life and deeds evaluated. So I suggest that it is at the time of each believer's death that his life and deeds are evaluated by God and the various rewards in view are assigned. It's at that moment, immediately upon being face to face with the Lord, and in a mere instant of time, that anyone who died was evaluated. And for any of us who may die in the future, it will be at that time that we will be evaluated. Now, this is in, in total agreement with the principle of divine evaluation. It doesn't conflict with the evaluation that is directly associated with Christ's return. Furthermore, I suggest that this evaluation will not be a collective event, but will be private and personal. That is, it's only between each, each individual and God. Let's look again at Romans 14, 11, and 12. But as for you, why do you judge your brother? Or you as well, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess agreement to God. So then each one of us will give a statement of acknowledgement concerning himself to God. The fact of evaluation is stated here without reference to any specific moment in time. But at the time that evaluation is completed, then each one is going to give a word or a statement of acknowledgement concerning himself to God. Now, verse 11 is a reference to Isaiah 45:23. It's not a direct quote. The words are not the same either in the Hebrew or in the Septuagint. The Greek word for give praise is ex homologeo. It means to say the same thing. This means to confess or agree about something. It does not mean to praise. Translation should be, and every tongue will confess agreement to God. Paul explains what it means at verse 12. Therefore, each one of us shall give a statement concerning himself to God. The structure here is the verb didomi, which means to give. And what is given is a statement. The Greek word there is logos, which means a, a word or a statement. Then there is the preposition peri, which means about or concerning, plus the pronoun autos, which means himself. Uh, thus, each one will give a statement concerning himself to God. Now, Paul's reference to Isaiah it's used to express the ultimate and final acknowledgement by all of creation that God is perfectly righteous. This will occur at various times before and, of course, at the time of the great white throne judgment. 
Paul then makes a temporal application to the believer and to the point of time when after the evaluation of life and deeds, that believer will give a word, a statement concerning himself to God. That is, he will make a statement totally agreeing with God about the results of the evaluation. Now, this is not giving any kind of excuse or explanation. It's simply stating a total acceptance of God's evaluation. In the Hebrew and the Greek of the Septuagint, uh, the words indicate the idea of giving glory to God. And of course, when the believer acknowledges and agrees with God's evaluation, that certainly fulfills the idea of giving glory to God. But still, this is written in a context that sees it as a future evaluation. It's an exhortation to those believers who are alive. It can be viewed as either anticipation of what will happen at death or in anticipation of what will happen at the rapture when Christ returns. Let's put the Old Testament believers who have died into the mix. We learn about them from the story of Lazarus and the rich man at Luke 16. Both Abraham and Lazarus are in a place of comfort. This suggests that any evaluation of their life would have already been completed. The place of comfort is called paradise, which indicates that any bad things done in life would have been judged and rejected by God, and the good things done in life would have been praised. Likewise, all the Old Testament saints who are now in heaven uh, described as the spirits of righteous men made complete at Hebrews 12:23. These believers reside there having had their lives and deeds evaluated. And then there are the martyrs shown to John at Revelation 6, 9 through 11. He sees a specific group of souls that is a symbolic representation of martyrs who died because of God's word and their testimony. Uh, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told that they would rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed even as they had been was completed also. So let's look at uh, six observations. One, they are seen in heaven before the sixth seal arrival of Jesus in the rapture. Two, they are at rest. The phrase rest a little while longer. Three, they ask God how long before he brings justice. That means the specific time of judgment is still future within the timeline of John's vision. Number four, it also indicates that in the mind of these martyrs, as they call out to God for justice, that the persecutors are still alive on the earth. The martyrs are seen within the timeline of the seals as dying after the red horse rider, uh, which probably represents the rise of the beast. Number five, each was given a white robe. Uh, the white robe usually symbolizes righteousness. This can indicate uh, that they are saved, that is, possessing the very righteousness of God, or it can indicate they have already received an evaluation of life and deeds, which is why they would be at rest. The fact that they are specifically martyrs focuses on their faithfulness in the face of death. But evaluation of faithfulness includes evaluation of every aspect of their life and deeds and will have already been completed at this time. And of course, it is difficult to imagine that these believers are residing in heaven at rest without having been evaluated as per 1 Corinthians 3. And number six, these believers are not in a resurrection body since they are seen as souls beneath the altar. Uh, from a pre-wrath perspective, they represent martyrs who will die during the tribulation and before the arrival of Jesus and the sixth uh, seal rapture. They will be seen later at Revelation 7-9 in resurrection bodies as part of the multitude that comes out of the great tribulation after the sixth seal rapture. <coughs> Excuse me. These believers at Revelation 7-9, they're in a condition of peace and comfort. Uh, evaluation uh, and rejection of bad works will have been accomplished at that time, or rather by that time. 
The pre-birth camp sees these believers as those who will be raptured at the sixth seal arrival of Jesus. And in that case, since the rapture raises dead and living saints, for those who had previously died, the evaluation would have occurred immediately after their death and upon their arrival in heaven or upon being face to face with the Lord. Probably at the meeting in uh, the meeting with him in the air. Uh, then for those who were living and then raptured, the evaluation will occur immediately upon their arrival in heaven. Thus, all the believers at Revelation 7, 9 are seen as clothed in white robes. Again, righteousness. It indicates that the evaluation of life and deeds had already taken place, or as mentioned earlier, simply the indication that they are saved. Regardless, the description of their status indicates that at the time they are seen here in heaven, their life and deeds will have been evaluated. Let's look at the 24 elders. Now, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 tells us what is in heaven at the time of writing and accordingly at this present time in history. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made uh, complete, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. <clears throat> in the order listed there, we see the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a symbolic picture of heaven itself, the city of the living God. Present there are angels, deceased believers of the church, God the Father, Old Testament believers, and Jesus. This is who we would see were we to be shown a vision of the heavenly setting. And this is what John was shown when within his vision, he was taken to that heavenly setting and saw symbols to represent things in heaven. At Revelation 4.1, the vision takes John into heaven. This is not symbolic of the rapture. This is simply bringing John into a new setting to observe the things that will occur from a heavenly perspective. And so John is shown God the Father, angels, the four cherubim, the Holy Spirit, 24 old men, and Jesus portrayed as the Lamb. But there's no specific mention of the millions and millions of believers who reside in heaven, uh, except there is actually a symbolic mention of those believers, the 24 old men. The word presbuteros refers to people, not angels, not animals, but people. Within that symbol, there are 12 men to represent the Old Testament believers who, who were transferred to heaven at the ascension of Jesus, and 12 to represent the New Testament believers who have died, absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. And uh, this symbolic group of believers is seen as uh, dressed in white and having crowns. This and the fact that they are in heaven indicates that they have already had life and deeds evaluated. The crowns probably refer to the fact that these are overcomers by faith in the Messiah, which, of course, is pertinent to both Old Testament and church age believers. Let's look at Revelation 11, 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. And the time came to give their reward to your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, briefly, the rapture is going to occur at the sixth seal. The trumpet judgment will follow that. The seventh trumpet is going to end the 70th week, and there's still going to be 30 more days before the beast is destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. And this is going to happen at the seventh bowl judgment. At the end of the week, Christ will begin his official reign over the kingdoms of the earth. And it will now be time for several things to be set in motion. All of these things will be triggered by the week 
coming to an end. But some of them will not occur until much later. But they'll be triggered by the end, uh, by, by the uh, event of the ending of the week. One of those things is it is time to give reward. This indicates that there's going to be a formal recognition and presentation of the various rewards involved. As seen already, every believer will have had life and deeds evaluated either at the time of their physical death or at the rapture. So this must refer to some later event that will formally bestow rewards upon all who have earned them. It seems then that when the believers are evaluated, either at death or rapture, any rewards will be assigned to them at that time, but not actually bestowed upon them until a future and formal presentation. Revelation 19, 7 and 8, we see the bride of Christ, all believers who are in heaven, Old Testament, New Testament, fully prepared and clothed in righteousness. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. The verb has prepared herself indicates that the preparation has already happened. In other words, the evaluation that results in being clothed with fine linen has taken place before this scene occurs. This fact of preparation of the bride does not look at each individual believer, but it looks at the entire body of believers as, as one collective whole. It sees that each individual contributed whatever they did, the least of which would be simply saving faith in Christ. For although a believer might indeed suffer loss of reward, yet he himself will be saved. So then, this indicates that all the believers located in heaven at that time will have had life and deeds evaluated. Now, this could indicate that a formal reward event has occurred, or the formal reward event could be delayed until a celebration during the wedding feast. Whenever that formal reward event will occur, it will be the fulfillment of Revelation 11:18. It is time to give reward. Now, this condition or status of the bride is seen to be in heaven. And it is time for the formal marriage event and marriage feast. It has not yet occurred, but the bride is prepared and waiting in the new Jerusalem until Jesus finishes the judgments on the unbelieving earth dwellers. The natural understanding is that the time for the wedding is here and the bride has made herself ready. Ready for what? Ready, of course, for the wedding event to take place. Now, of course, these things have been discussed and debated for centuries. I suggest that this passage shows the bride in heaven waiting for the wedding and the wedding feast. And I believe they both will occur at the start of the earthly kingdom after the battle of Armageddon. It appears that this group of saints is designated as the bride and not yet the wife. Um, it's the bride, using the, the Greek word nymphe, that descends onto the earth at the start of the earthly kingdom. Revelation 21, 2 and 9 shows that this group is the bride who is the wife of the lamb. Uh, the word bride is nymphe and the word wife is gune. Now, the word gune primarily means woman. This collective group of believers would not be both the bride and the wife at the same time. They would not be both the gune and the nymphe at the same time. But certainly she can be described as the bride and the woman of the lamb. So, okay. Now, Armageddon will, will be resolved 30 days after the end of the week based on comparing Daniel 12, 11, Revelation 14, 17 through 20, Revelation 16, 12 through 21, and 18, 21 through 24. <laughs> and the earthly kingdom will begin 45 days after that. Daniel 12, 12 says, happy is he who waits and attains to the 1335 days. I suggest that after the bride is seen in heaven, uh, by the way, she is waiting in heaven, not participating. Uh, so after Showing John the bride, he is shown a vision of Jesus coming out of the sky and descending onto the earth to engage in battle. This is his physical descent onto the earth several months after his initial return 
that is symbolized at the sixth seal. And the armies that follow him, they're angels. It's not the church. The bride is still in is still waiting in heaven for the victorious king to return. As I have claimed on several occasions, a king will simply not bring his bride into battle. Now, according to the Old Testament, when he descends onto the earth, he will go first to Edom, then to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and then he will go to Megiddo for the uh, final battle of Armageddon. After Armageddon, chapter 20 shows the binding of Satan for a thousand years, the reign of believers with Christ for a thousand years, the last battle after the thousand years, the judgment of the great white throne after the thousand years, and the creation of the new heavens and earth after the thousand years. At Revelation 21, 2, the vision backs up to the start of the earthly kingdom. John is shown a vision of the new Jerusalem, which symbolizes the bride coming down to the earth prepared for her husband. This represents the start of the thousand-year earthly kingdom and still sees the marriage as yet to occur. And then Revelation 21, 9 through 27, as I uh, mentioned earlier, it indicates this by showing John the bride, the woman of the Lamb. And so the kingdom is going to begin with the bride ready for the wedding and a group of wedding guests invited to join the celebration. These are seen at Revelation 19.9 and refers to all believers on uh, alive on the earth after Armageddon. Uh, again, at Daniel 12.12, 12, happy is he who waits and attains to the 13.35 days. So after the dust settles from Christ's defeat of the armies gathered against him, there will be a 45-day period of time to prepare for the establishment of the earthly kingdom. During that time, there's going to be an evaluation of all the peoples left alive on the earth. They will be separated into two groups, believers and unbelievers, righteous and unrighteous. This will not be an evaluation of life and works for determining any kind of ultimate accolades and rewards in heaven. It will be a determination of who is a believer. Who trusted in Jesus as the Messiah Savior and who did not? This is going to result in the removal of unbelievers from the earth and the confirmation of those who are believers. These will then go alive into the earthly kingdom. The Jewish believers who enter the kingdom are seen at Ezekiel 34, 17 through 31. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. Behold, I, I myself will also judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Since you push away with your side and shoulder and gore all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plunder. And I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will appoint over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. The Gentile believers who enter the kingdom are seen at Zechariah 14, 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. They are also seen at Matthew 25, 31 through 46. This passage shows the believing survivors after Armageddon, but looks beyond their entrance into the earthly kingdom and just declares their, uh, their eternal destiny. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's a heavenly kingdom. The righteous will go into everlasting life. However, they will first go into the earthly kingdom as citizens under Christ's rulership. These believers will enter into, into the kingdom in normal, mortal bodies and live their lives under the jurisdiction of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the bride of Christ. All resurrected believers from all previous time periods will reign with Christ from within the new Jerusalem and uh, help govern the peoples of the world. There's going to be marriages, births, and deaths uh, among those uh, mortal believers who start the kingdom. We have no information about what will happen with believers who die or when they will receive a resurrection for life throughout eternity. But the pattern should still be in operation 
that every believer who dies will go into the third heaven and immediately have life and deeds evaluated. And then at the end of the earthly kingdom, these and all believers alive at that time will probably be given a resurrection body and join all the other believers of human history for their eternal destiny within the Godhead. Uh, see, at the end of the millennial kingdom, after the satanic revolution, uh, Revelation 27 through 10, all unbelievers, both living and dead, will appear before the great white throne judgment and be sentenced to the lake of fire for all eternity. That brings us to the last judgment, to this very, very present time in history. Whenever an unbeliever dies, they go to the place of torments in Hades. They reside there until the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here it does appear to be a very formal and collective gathering of all unbelievers. There's no indication that any unbelievers... Uh, pardon me, there's no indication that any believers appear here except for a couple witnesses called by God. These appear to testify in order to demonstrate to the unbelievers of the Messiah generation how serious was their failure to accept God's grace provision for salvation through the person of, uh, of the messianic promise, the Lord Jesus himself. The men of Nineveh and the Queen of the South. Now, the greatest generation of all time to be recipients of God's grace is the generation that saw and heard the very presence of God's Messiah Savior. The witness of the Ninevites will be something along these lines. We accepted the message of the prophet Jonah, who faithfully proclaimed the messianic promise. We cannot help but accuse you for rejecting the words and works of the Messiah himself in the person of Jesus. And the Queen of the South was so captivated with Solomon's, or rather God's wisdom, that she embraced the divine viewpoint and accepted the messianic promise. She, too, will stand as a testament to God's grace and rebuke that evil and adulterous generation for rejecting the very person of the Messiah himself. Now, <clears throat> at the Last Judgment, the books that are opened uh, refer to the record of all the humanly good deeds the unbelievers had done. The deeds are listed and documented to establish the fact that no matter how many good deeds the unbeliever might have done throughout their life, all of them will come short of God's own righteousness. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of God's righteousness. Isaiah 4.64.6 uh, states the principle, all of our righteous deeds are, are like a garment of uncleanness. So all their humanly good things simply will not equal the very righteousness of God. None of their good works can save them. The principle stated by Paul at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we are saved by grace through faith, and that salvation is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God, not from works. The judgment on the unbelievers is also going to show that they failed to do the one and only good work that will bring salvation from sin. That one and only good work, as we saw earlier, is to believe in Jesus, just as he declared, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so that is why the book of life is opened. From before the foundation of the world, the name of every single person who would live had their name recorded in the book of life. Anyone who died without trusting in Christ as Savior had their name blotted out. Only those who trusted in Jesus for salvation have their names permanently recorded there. Now, this book is opened as additional documentation that these unbelievers never trusted in Jesus. But the fact that there was a spot for their name 
indicates God's grace in doing everything he could do to bring these people to a change of mind. But as the scripture declares uh, in many places and summarized at Matthew 23, 37, but you were not willing. And so the perfect justice of God will assign all of them to the lake of fire for all, all, uh, for all eternity. It's described in Revelation 14, 10 and 11. The unbeliever will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Now, whether this uh, should be considered a literal fire or not is not really the issue. The issue is the experience that is described with the idiomatic expression, they have no rest day or night. Now, I must admit, that appears to be very harsh, unfair, and unliving. <laughs> Pardon me, unloving. But that is the age-old accusation from Satan against God's character and plan. And is perpetuated in the delusionary human logic of people all throughout history. But when we, as believers, truly understand God's righteousness, justice, and yes, his love, we are able to accept and indeed approve of this divine verdict against all who have rejected him. But for those who have embraced God through faith in the person and work of Jesus, there is the promise of everlasting life. And there will be no more sin and unrighteousness, no more curse and no more death. All who have trusted in Christ during their life on earth will live and reign with him throughout the years, ages, time periods of eternity. And only God knows the details of that future eternity. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 